0: Good evening,
1: Los Angeles, and welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher, and we are here for the next hour as we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Apologetics.com radio show. We've been here on the Friday night slot here at midnight for about the past 20 years, and uh, our show, we basically bring you apologetic content that we talk about the Bible, we talk about uh, cultural apologetics. And more recently, we've been kind of focusing on that aspect of kind of speaking to our culture. And we have a special guest with us in studio tonight. We have Mr. Grant Spear, who I will introduce in just a moment. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Depending on your perspective. Uh, Tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about covenantal apologetics and looking at apologetics through the lens of creation, in particular uh, chapters one and two of Genesis and kind of understanding how we can speak to the culture uh, when we look at everything through a biblical lens. Uh, Tonight's show, just a little bit of housekeeping, is sponsored by Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We've been partnering uh, with this ministry, apologetics.com, for probably a good 15 years we've had different people coming on and hosting and now we are a regular kind of contributor uh we come through on a monthly basis to host on this second friday night slash saturday morning um if you guys uh enjoy the show if you guys have benefited from this show over the years we would appreciate and encourage you to go over to apologetics.com and uh, donate, whatever whatever you might be led to donate. We completely just rely on the Lord for his provision. Uh, none of us, none of the hosts are actually paid. We're all full-time. What? Full-time. Uh, I thought I was going to be paid for this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you got a coffee. I'm leaving. Oh, yeah. that coffee's pretty good. And um, so, yeah, we're just here. We love kind of defending the faith and uh, giving people hope, reasons uh, for the hope that we have. And if you want to contact me, Jason Gallagher, you could reach me at jason at apologetics.com. And we would love to interact with you. Again, our topic is going to be Covenantal Apologetics, and Grant Spear um, is a seminary student. You'll hear more from him in a minute, and uh, he's going to be helping us unpack Covenantal Apologetics and also, um, you know, this idea of thinking through creation from an apologetic perspective as well. But uh, throughout the show, if you'd like to chime in, if you have questions about the topic that we're, we're talking about, uh, call us at 888 kkla That's 888 5552 And, um, you know, even if your questions aren't on this particular topic, if you have questions about the Bible, theology, how to defend the faith, you know, maybe some question that you came across recently that uh, you wanted some some help responding to, we'd be happy to engage with you. The lines are open. Uh, so, Grant Spear, welcome to the show, first time guest. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself man thanks yeah well one
2: thing about myself is i've never been on the radio before i don't i don't i mean i've been told i have a face for radio but yes this is I, true. I think that's a compliment right if they're commenting Definitely. on your face and we are there's... on
1: we are on facebook live okay good so right. if you guys do <laughs> he yeah. does have a face for radio if you do want to check him out that's right we are on facebook live at uh, apologetics.com on facebook yeah so if you want to interact with us there please feel free to uh, submit some questions and we'll, we'll make sure to check that and uh, respond. So yeah.
2: Yeah. awesome. Now, I've never been told I had a voice for radio, unfortunately. I always wish I had one of those. <laughs> um, so if I do anything wrong here, I apologize, like burp into the mic or something like that. I'm try really hard not to do that. Um, no, my name's Grant. Um, I'm also a member at the branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church that Jason uh, mentioned as sponsoring the show tonight. Um been married to my lovely wife Kelly for um, 18 years and have five kids. Um, worked in the engineer program management field for um, almost nice. 20 years, but um, I, I'm seeing a, a change of uh, careers potentially on the horizon. And so part of that has been um, starting a Masters of Divinity um, a degree program at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Nice. Taking those classes online, still living out here in Los Angeles. Um, if I get anything wrong in this apologetics <laughs> conversation, though, I'm sure the error is mine and not the fine uh, faculty and training that uh, <laughs> Westminster Theological Seminary brings. It's, He's it's being graded on this so far. Tonight, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, as a kind of first-year part-time seminary student, my goal is to try to finish this... Program in like six years, um, screaming through the finish line to get there. But you know, a, a first year seminary student's kind of scary because they think they know everything because they've started taking right. a few classes. Right. Um, so I'm going to try not to do so that. And, and we got be, him in his prime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but one of the things, in all seriousness, that I think is great is. We're reading a bunch of great books and having a lot of great instruction going through this to just um, share some of that here with the uh, with the audience here of the show. And, and you're
1: taking a particular class right now, right, on apologetics. Yes,
2: yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification. So I'm taking a few classes. I'm taking Greek 3 and also Introduction to Apologetics, AP 101. Um, and so we've read a few different books for that, and tonight— I brought in two of those books and uh, hoped we could just cover We're not going to actually read them from cover to cover tonight, unfortunately, but just cover one or two key points from them that I think are really uh, important for apologetics and and really interesting to discuss. So the first book um, that I thought we could talk about, Jason, is Covenantal Apologetics. I'll hold it up here for anyone that's looking at that that camera. I'm sure everyone is. Um, Covenantal Apologetics – Subtitles Principles and Practice in Defense of Our Faith by Scott Oliphant. Um, So, his point, his main reason for writing the book is pretty interesting for any of our listeners that are familiar with the uh, late great apologist Cornelius Van Til. Mm hmm. uh, his po- uh, the point of this book is to help to translate Van Til, um, but sometimes Van Til is a little hard to read, he, English was not his first language, and he was just very philosophically minded, and so there's a certain uh, making this more accessible, and then also he wanted to translate um, the content of Van Til and the thinking of Van Til into a more explicitly biblical and theological rather than just a philosophical
1: emphasis. So um, that's a lot of what he's doing. Yeah, and Van Til, we've talked about Van Til. At least I have talked about Van Til. He's uh, one of my favorite apologists, and he is well known for what has been coined what presuppositional apologetics. And I believe this covenantal apologetics um, is related to that presuppositional apologetics in a way. It's kind of building upon it. Very much so. Uh, clarifying some of it. Um, yeah, uh,
2: the author, uh, Dr. Oliphant, he's actually making the case for a bit of a name change, mm-hmm. uh, but not really a content change. Um, he really, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, as I said, the point is to it, um, present Van Til to the current, the modern audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, not to change Van Til too much to be, but to be able to translate him. So definitely still in line with presuppositional apologetics, but just there's certain things he hi- highlights in the book of why he thinks that that term isn't a great term to use anymore. Right. Um, for those not familiar with presuppositional apologetics, it's, it's typically seen as a distinctively Reformed approach to apologetics. For those that are familiar with Reformed theology, a very high view of God, a very high view of the Scriptures, mm-hmm. um, uh, basically assuming Scriptures in all of our argumentation um, – not trying to take a neutral standpoint where we would set aside the Scripture and then kind of come to some supposed uh, neutral ground of conversation with the, are, with the nonbeliever.
1: What are the other apologetic camps in kind of contrast to presuppositional?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most uh, common camps that's um, from a different perspective today is called evidentialism. And so in that, there's more of a... Uh, the believer doesn't, or the unbeliever does not hold to the scriptures, so we're going to kind of put that off to the side. Um, We do see history, right? So we're going to look at certain uh, facts of history, things that are evidences, and try to kind of argue up to God from there. A lot Mm -hmm. of times there's a goal to, um, to really, even in that evidential approach, just to get to a um, the basic idea, a basic theism, a basic idea that there is a God, not necessarily the triune God of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So that's actually one of the distinctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Oliphant says up front um, he wants to argue that apologetics should be one Christian and two have a theological foundation. Yeah. Uh, so those are those are important parts
1: of what he wants to to bring in his apologetics. Right, so being Christian as opposed to being some sort of neutral, um, not necessarily non-Christian. I wouldn't say that other apologetic methodologies are non-Christian, but they aren't explicitly Christian in that they start with the triune God that has revealed himself uh, to us through Scripture. Um, They kind of start just with man's intellect or man's reason, and they try to get from there to some... Uh, some argument for a god or a creator um, without starting necessarily with the triune god of scripture right and part of the problem that the um,
2: presuppositional or covenant covenantal apologetics uh, minded person would have with that approach Mm -hmm. is that um, even the idea of Thinking of facts, what facts are, how our knowledge works, how reason is, what is reason—these, you know, a universal abstract entity like laws of logic—you have to have God for to even get off the ground with any of those kinds of things. So, they're mm-hmm. basically the argument is you are ceding too much ground to the non-believer when mm-hmm. you're uh, just starting and assuming that they can explain facts and that they can explain rationality and they can mm-hmm. explain. Even science and things like that. Right. So, um, but if we could, uh, let's jump into that whole idea of the covenantal aspect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Does that sound good?
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's unpack that.
2: Yeah. So, um, this is, I think, one of the most uh, distinctive parts and really valuable things that Dr. Oliphant brings out in this book, Covenantal Apologetics. Um, is he really focuses on a biblical anthropology, or you know, the fancy word for a view of man? Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of those is rooted in Romans one, seeing what the apostle Paul says in Romans one that uh, that all men know God, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, um, and they don't just know God, but they're in a certain relationship with God. Every man, not just the ones who acknowledge God, and the reason they're in that relationship uh with God's because in creation God entered into a covenant with all men. Um and so it's inescapable. And so we're basically uh, and the covenant, the idea of covenant is it's um kind of like a promise. There's certain um uh terms of uh, and conditions on the covenant that God sovereignly brings into the relationship. Um and that just by virtue of, of being a human being, that we' are in covenant with God. right. Um, and that means that if we're not responding to that covenant faithfully, then we are covenant breakers. Mm-hmm. And so every single person you're talking to, particularly any person that is a non-believer mm-hmm. um, that is not trusting in Christ alone, uh, is not acknowledging that they are in that covenant relationship with God appropriately, and they are therefore covenant breakers. And so you're speaking to someone in the apologetics encounter Mm -hmm. who um, is not just kind of morally neutral on this whole question of God. They're already um, decidedly um, guilty uh, before God. And so that's a really important thing when we say, who is it that I am bringing the gospel to? Who is it that Mm -hmm. I am offering my apologetic to? It's Mm -hmm. someone that already is in a morally –
1: Uh, guilty um, state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that point is something I want to emphasize, is that when you're speaking to someone who's a covenant breaker, right, you have a covenant of works that was given to Adam in the garden, right, where God said, you shall not eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There There was basically a commandment, and God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die, right? So... If, if Adam obeyed, he was promised life, right? If Adam disobeyed, he was promised death, right? And Adam fell and all of us fell in Adam, Like Romans 5 talks about that, right? All of us, in Adam, all of us sinned, all of us fell with Adam. And so we come into this world by nature sinful and by nature um, at, you know, enmity with God and, you know, guilty of breaking this covenant. And that's kind of the key point of all of our apologetics, right? That we want to see people moved from this category of covenant breaker under God's judgment, under God's wrath, to come into a true and correct knowledge and appreciation of who God is and what he has done to restore that covenant through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be made um, covenant keepers, not on basis of our own works, but on basis of faith in Christ. So maybe, Grant, unpack that a little bit, because the key thing is, like, we want people to move from being a covenant breaker to a covenant keeper, and that will allow us just at least to kind of get the gospel um, into kind of focus here, and then, you know, we could kind of continue to move on to some aspects of how this apologetic kind of works itself out practically.
2: Yeah, gladly. I think that's a great point First up, of, first off, that you're bringing up. Um, so often, unfortunately, I think in in apologetics discussions among Christians, um, there's rightly so. I think a, a certain uh, iron sharpens iron approach where we're talking about the method mm-hmm. and you know how should we go about and do this but when the rubber hits the road if that's all we ever do is sit around and talk about the uh, appropriate method to do to do this sure we're not doing what god has called us to do right. we're to go out and be engaging um mm-hmm. uh, uh unbelievers um and to give a reason for the hope that's within us so yeah. um definitely I, I think for any um Christians that are hearing us and thinking through, how do you apply this? How do you go out and be the best apologist you can? I think the very first step is just go out. Yeah. Just do it. Just go. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's really critically important. I, I do think um, we can make our apologetics better, more in line with how God mm. says to do this, and that's why we're talking about this, so I don't want to take away from the importance of that. But still, just do it, that Nike uh, slogan. Yeah. But then, for any unbelievers that that hear our voice, you know, I think this is a call to you that, you know, this you aren't in a morally neutral standpoint um, with God. Everyone is in a covenant with God. Everyone is in a relationship with God, mm-hmm. and if that relationship is not one that's been restored in Christ, then you're in a Naturally fallen, sinful state, and I think probably everyone knows that they're in that sinful state, and we're and we're um, going to face a, a judgment from God in the future. And so, our only uh, hope of escape from that is um, is our restoration in Christ, to trust in Christ and the work that that He has done in a sacrifice in our behalf. And and even um, beyond that, I think entering into a world, you know, this this idea of this. Um, covenant talk, it kind of then mm-hmm. seeds the whole ideas of restoration to what humanity is supposed to be. And we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that more in the second half of the show and mm-hmm. some of the beauty of creation and, mm-hmm. and really what God is doing. I think sometimes we have way too narrow of a focus on what Christianity speaks to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, salvation is huge enough, right? <laughs> and it's fundamental enough, but there's yeah. even way more that it has to speak to in our yeah. lives. Um, could we? Were you going to say something? Oh, I was
1: just going to, you know, I was just going to talk about, you know, maybe you could mention this idea. Um, so when we look at a person that we're trying to, uh, speak to apologetically, um, we need to understand that they are, have broken this covenant relationship with God. Um, And that they know God, right? Like Romans 1 says, they know God through the things that have been made. They are without excuse, right? Well, Romans 1 talks about that. Um, And this idea of knowledge, you know, is—so evidential apologetics is like giving people a lot of knowledge, a lot of intellectual arguments, uh, evidence, you know, for the resurrection, for the deity of Christ, you know, maybe for the reliability of the scriptures, the historicity of the the text, and so on and so forth— um, You know, we talked a little bit about this earlier. You know, there's many people in the scriptures, let's say the guards that were guarding the tomb of Christ, they saw the empty tomb. They know, you know, his body wasn't stolen, but they were told to go tell this story that it was stolen and they were given money to kind of keep yeah. their mouth shut. It's pretty um, amazing. You know, they, so they saw, and there was people, like you said, who saw the risen Christ and they still didn't believe. So it's not merely just this... Um, intellectual assent, so to speak. It's more. Yes, there's more guilt there. Or, that's a you know, yeah. That's how does a, this apologetic speak to that?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it speaks directly to that because if the whole point of our apologetics is to get someone to believe that, well, maybe Christ did really raise from the dead. How does that idea, even if we get someone to that doorstep, how does that apply with what Jason you were just talking about there, where we know that. In the time of Jesus, at the time of the resurrection, there were people that know, knew full well that he was a miracle worker, that he rose from the dead, the guards that were there. Yeah, yeah the they weren't miracles. Yeah, yeah they, they weren't converted. So there's definitely a um, – there, there's definitely a, a under um, – underscoring there that there is much more to this than just a mere lack of knowledge. Sometimes mm-hmm. people do need to uh, uh, get knowledge, and I think the mm-hmm. gospel is something that we need to take to all all nations, but there's certainly enough knowledge out there that's inherently um, in the, rev- the general revelation and, and in the revelation that includes even within ourselves um, that God reveals to us who he is, even his eternal power and Godhead. Um, so yeah, it's not just a lack of knowledge. Would you read Romans um, 1, 18 to 20? And I think that is a, is a great uh, point for, for some of this, what we're talking about. And then I'll yeah. follow that up with some of Oliphant just really briefly.
1: Yeah, so Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them Yeah, that, that's pretty
2: powerful, and I'm glad you, you went on to read verse
1: 21 there, for yeah. although they
2: knew God, yeah. they did not honor him as God. And then we see up in, I think it's in verse 18, yeah, those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's not just there's this knowledge and truth that is known. Mm-hmm. It says all men know it. Um And it's not just that it's suppressed, it's suppressed in unrighteousness. Again, there's that not morally neutral aspect to this. We are speaking to someone who who has broken this covenant. Here's a couple of just quick excerpts on this point. Did you say four? All right. Yeah. Um, So Dr. Oliphant says, To whom is the faith once for all delivered to the saints to be defended? Given the above, it's to be defended at least to those who are covenant breakers, those whose relationship to God is defined by rebellion and denial. And then later he says, We can say unequivocally, therefore, that by virtue of man's being created in the image of God, by virtue of man's being a covenant creature, every human being on the face of the earth since creation and into eternity has an irradicable knowledge of God a knowledge that is given through the things that were made, which includes, of course, everything except God himself. Amen. Did
1: you want to add to
2: that? Uh, Let's see. Well, I guess one thing we could cover, I think we hit that point pretty well about the uh, covenantal nature, the knowledge that man has. I think maybe in our last few minutes here of our first section of the show, um, maybe we could just talk about, um, what does this mean for uh, for the believer and for the non-believer? So, um, as far as for the for the Christian, um, again, it means that the main issue is not merely that our person we're talking to or the unbeliever we're talking to is lacking knowledge, and so mm-hmm. we really need to come to that person knowing there's someone that that knows God already. It doesn't mean they're saying yes, I know God shame on me, I'm a terrible sinner, right? Right. Uh, There is this sense in which they know God, and then immediately, like Romans 1 said, they're suppressing it. So both those things are held in tension. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Christian needs to know, this is who you're talking to. Might not be who that person
1: uh, identifies as, but this is who God
2: says that they are. Yeah,
1: it's kind of having like an inside perspective, right, on... Uh, what's going on behind the scenes, you know what I mean? We have kind of like the playbook from God himself. He's telling us the truth about this person we're speaking to, right? They might be saying, no, I don't believe in God. Um, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe any of this stuff. And But God is telling us in his word, no, they know me, right? My invisible attributes, my divine nature, all of those things have been clearly understood by them, just through creation just through them living in my world right and so what what we need to gently do or lovingly do um, is to help them see that the very thing that they're denying is the same thing that is actually uh, making their life and everything that they do in life possible yes right um, it's you know the transcendental argument or what um, what they call the impossibility of the contrary, right? Where you're basically pointing out things that they assume to be true about their um, reality and just existence that they can't account for apart from, you know, the Christian God of Scripture. One of the things, like you mentioned earlier, is logic, right? right? Yeah. They can't live without logic, right? They can't, they try to argue against God using logic, but, you know, logic itself is something that they can't account for, for example. Logic itself is something that only makes sense in a Christian worldview, in a worldview where God exists. And so one of the things we try to do is reveal these sort of things to them um, in hopes that they might come to realize, wow, what I'm believing really doesn't make sense. What I'm believing is kind of a contradiction um, and if any person is believing something that's contradictory, by definition they should abandon that, right? And and move towards something that makes sense and is rational. So Amen. That's, that's kind of our, our task um, and that's a little bit of, you know, how this covenantal apologetic tries to work. Um, Much more to be said, but that's a, Much that's a more to be said. Intro. That was like a, you know, fire hose feeding there. But uh, you hear the music in the background. We're coming up on a commercial break here, and we'll be back after these short messages.
3: The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. On the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com.
1: You might be surprised to know that Jesus never used the word grace. Hello, I'm Chuck Swindoll. Jesus certainly never used the word grace as a sermon title or wrote an essay about it. He just lived it. And actually, the Bible never gives us a definition of grace, though it's full of it. Scene after scene in the scriptures illustrates grace. Grace goes back to an old Hebrew term that means to bend or stoop. Perhaps the best way to describe grace is with the idea of condescending favor. Condescending, bending down. God did that. He bent down to
0: bestow grace. How I love that word.
1: Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll Visit Insight for Living's website at Insight.org.
0: Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. Do you start a project using a vision board? Do you gather motivation by visualizing a situation to achieve success? Life has thrown us some painful curves in the last 12 months, and maybe our plans got hijacked. I love what Psalm 4610 says, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. In the previous verses, we see a vivid description of an earthquake so big that the mountains get swallowed up by the sea. The psalmist is trying to show us that even in the worst disaster, God is sufficient as our refuge And strength. Ladies, when life is upended, it is only the sovereign God as our refuge who will hide us securely in the fiercest troubles of life. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org.
1: All right, let's get back to the apologetics.com radio show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Thanks for hanging with us. We are in the second half of our show tonight and we are in studio with our good friend Grant Spear. How you doing, Grant? music is exciting. I almost you know,
2: wanted to dance here, but I knew there was the camera again and I'm just going to sit here like a You're trying to be a good seminary student. Yeah, and I just don't have any dancing skills. So. <laughs> Do you
1: know who made that music? My guess is Chris Neiswanger. No, he didn't make that one. No, no. man. But uh, a friend of his, another rock star, Dennis Alvey. Dennis Alvey. All right. Good job, Dennis. Yeah, he put that together for us. We've been running that as our intro and outro to our shows. I did not know that. So, if you guys need any uh, any sound intro type work done, contact Dennis Alvey. All right. That's good to know. (laughs) Yeah. So we've been talking tonight about covenantal apologetics um and kind of unpacking that and what it is it's kind of a it's not a rebranding um it's kind of a clarification of presuppositional apologetics giving it a little bit more um of a definitive term you know one thing we didn't mention we we spoke about it in passing but this idea of um presuppositions i thought this was a great point that you know grant brought up in our kind of pre-show conversation and in reference to Thomas Kuhn, and this idea that he had about scientific paradigms, I want to touch on that. I think that's important as to like give some context to why. Yeah, shifting. that was
2: that was one of the things that Dr. Oliphant mentioned as the reason for pivoting away from the presuppositional terminology. He said that the uh, the language of presuppositions. Um, has started has gotten closely aligned with some of Thomas Kuhn. Was this uh, philosopher uh, and really dealt with the philosophy of science in the sixties and wrote this book um, uh, about scientific revolutions and how um, they're really determined the the paradigm of what is uh, w- what goes as the main explanation of things. Uh, everything kind of gets interpreted in terms of of that paradigm until there's so much dissonance between what the actual science is showing and that paradigm that it kind of crumbles and a new paradigm has to come up mm-hmm. and so that idea of a paradigm was really similar to presuppositions that and, and so it kind but it kind of undermines the idea because what van til meant by um the presuppositions that he talked about was that these are foundational parts of reality who god is how God's created the world, who, yeah. what his personality is, what um, uh, his revelation in the Bible is, whereas a paradigm was more of a, a man-made way of seeing things. Right. Um, so uh, there, those two things getting confused are not good. Right.
1: Yeah, and that presupposition that Van Til, he's basically saying that all men, those in covenant and those breaking God's covenant, those presuppositions are foundational for all of us. You know, it's just—it's an inescapable thing. And what covenant does, what the word covenant does, is it kind of grounds something not in, you know, this presupposition that a man has about the world, about science, about the way they view the world. When you bring it into the language of covenant, covenant is something that God establishes. It's something that God initiates, and there's a more concreteness to it, Right. Yeah. Um as opposed to, you know, something that man changes with time and changes as they as they learn and grow yeah. uh in their knowledge. So I thought that was just a good point um just to kind yeah, of that, highlight. glad you brought yeah. that up. Can I uh
2: hit on one more thing before we move on to yeah. our next book? Yeah, yeah. So on this one you talked Jason about um the uh laws of reason and rationality and how we know that everyone, including non-believers, depend on laws of logic, even though mm-hmm. from particularly a atheistic, materialistic, unbelieving perspective, there's not really a good way to account for something that's universal, yet mm-hmm. not material. Um, another th- way that—and and so really, it's not just meant to say, ah, gotcha. What it's really trying to do is illustrate that whole idea we talked about in the last segment of Everyone knowing God, yet those who are uh, unbelievers naturally suppressing that truth. And so you see one of the evidence of, of the knowledge part is being in line. You know, with God, with the existence of God, that that mm-hmm. uh, appealing to laws of logic, needing laws of logic. Another thing is the view of morals, right? Mm-hmm. I would never go out there and say that uh, an atheist is an immoral or is a person that d- has no morals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think morals, particularly in today's day uh, day and age, is a huge part of how an atheist kind of postures themselves, um, and you think of you know so many atheists who are anti and these are all kind of from a very moral you know high high minded kind of moral perspective anti war love your neighbor um you know pro fighting anything that would destroy the the climate and the the environment mm-hmm. um anti gun pro choice pro science anti hate you know all these things are very like value laden kind of notions yet you have yeah, yeah. to wonder um if you're a materialist and you believe everything is matter in motion, how are you how are you defending these as anything other than your taste? You know, I like vanilla yeah, yeah, ice yeah. cream, you like chocolate ice cream, but you know, I can't impose my vanilla on you yet there's right. very much a need to impose uh morality. It's not going to do enough for me to just say I'm opposed to murder if yeah. if you're cool with it. Yeah. Um and so then there you see another uh place where there's this you know everyone knows god we have to have morality yeah, yeah. yet at the same time we can't have his morality and mm-hmm. we're, and we're going to reject that and so it's that tension that i think is valuable one to point out to the athe- the uh, uh, the atheists and unbelievers that are hearing us tonight but then also to encourage Believers, to add this into your approach to apologetics, those kinds of inconsistencies that underscore that that uh, truth we talked about from Romans one that all men know
1: God yet they suppress it. Hold their their feet to the fire. You know, don't let them get away with these, you know, borrowed capital. You know, these uh, borrowed ideas that truly have their foundation in Scripture. They truly have their foundation in a God who has given us laws, right, who has given us a conscience, right, he's written his laws on people's hearts, right, he's imprinted them on there so that when we, conscience just means with knowledge, right, when we lie, we do it with knowledge that it's wrong. You know, when we steal, we do it with knowledge that it's wrong. That's what our conscience does. It tells us, like, these things are wrong, and that is from God. Um, That can't, you know, that doesn't come from you know, material, you know, just yeah. just strict material. Um, and this leads us kind of to this idea that, you know, when someone says – when someone rejects God, you know, they still have values. They still are anti-war. They're pro-environment. They're pro-choice. They're this and that. They've set up their own morality, right? Some
2: of which is, you know, based on legitimate you know, yeah. moral things. Not that they and, can base it on right.
1: on anything in their world yeah. but yeah. some of it lines up with God's, you know, what God's image has put on us, but they tr- they try to then become you know God themselves. They start kind of this process of self deification. Um which Christopher Watkin gets into, you know, his the way he kind of starts to think about um apologetics through the lens of Genesis one and two or creation kind of starts to get in this. So, Grant, why don't you introduce that book? I know you've read through it this semester. Yeah, so um, this was one we'll of our other books
2: um, that we read through in our uh, Intro to Apologetics class at Westminster Theological Seminary. I need, to, put, I need seminary. to give our
1: number out again. Oh, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you guys want to call and chime in um, on this conversation and speak to uh, the seminary student himself, Grant Spear. The freshman seminary the freshman student. seminary to hear all student, the wisdom... Knows?
2: Yeah. A lot. <laughs>
1: uh call us. Triple eight nine nine five KKLA. That's triple eight ninety nine five fifty five fifty two. If you have any questions about the conversation tonight or just apologetics, the Bible, culture in general, uh we'd love to chat with you. There are some lines open. So um yeah, there you go. All right. Well let me introduce a second book for anyone that's looking
2: at that live feed. Here's a beautiful picture of it. I'm sure you see it well through the grainy feed there. Uh yeah. Thinking Through Creation, subtitled Genesis 1 and 2 as Tools of Cultural Critique by Christopher Watkin. Um, It's a really thought-provoking book. I really loved it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a bit of a spin. It's not just a purely apologetics-focused kind of book, Mm -hmm. but all kinds of applications in apologetics. But it's really about... Applying uh the Christian worldview and the scriptures to uh, all of life, and particularly as the subtitle talked about Genesis one and two um, it's it's really astounding mm-hmm. how much is packed into just those two chapters that is relevant for yeah. us today and for uh, justifying um, how we how we should think about the world and how we should build culture and these kinds of things. Um, And so he's all about kind of mining these hugely impactful themes and the teachings that are found in these chapters um, and bringing them forward for cultural critique and for construction. A lot of times today, you know, I think Christians are good at pointing around to the real folly that's so evident in our culture. It's not hard to do, and and a lot of times there's a need to do that. But one of the things that this book does that— Modern Christians don't always do very well. Is it makes a case for Christians constructively building culture? It's not enough to just say, "Well, that's stupid." <laughs> Anyone right. could do that, right, right? Right. But we have the goods, you yeah. know, in the Christian religion and throughout time. I mean, it's not just. Um, You know, there's this odd idea today that Christians are the dullards, maybe because the media, you know, presents it that way. Mm -hmm. But you look back since the history, and really the last 2,000 years of Western civilization, um, and it is the tall thinkers, it is those constructing culture who are the Christians. Um, And it's not going to be anything other than that, I think, in in the long term, um, because, History was changed on that Resurrection uh, Sunday, the first Sunday when uh, Christ rose from the dead, and history would never be different, uh, try as anyone may. Um, So I'm hopeful about that. But coming back to the book, um, one of the – well, let me talk real quick about how he – kind of the way uh, this idea of thinking through creation. He talks about thinking through, what he means by thinking Mm -hmm. through. A lot of times we can – look at scripture and there's certain doctrines, you know, and we think about those doctrines. And we should think about them and we meditate upon them and it's mm-hmm. they're kind of the object of our meditation. Um but we need to do more than that too. And what he's encouraging us in this thinking through is we're taking a lot of these these recurring structures and these big patterns of thought and then we're using them um to a, to think through all the issues of life with these
1: uh, biblical structures. Amen. Yeah, I love that, uh, that. I read the book a few years ago, um, kind of re, re-unpacking it with Grant uh, t- today and, you know, over the past week has just reminded me of what a great read it is. And it's really, you know, like Grant was saying, when you look, take Genesis 1 and 2 and you look through – creation, what it tells us about God, his nature, you know, let us make man in our image, right? It speaks of, you know, the the triunity of God. You see, you know, the spirit hovering over the waters. You see God speaking, you know, Jesus is the word of God. And so you see the triune God right there. You see creation, you see beauty, you see goodness, you see truth. And the whole idea that he wants people to to take away is kind of how to think through the Bible in relation to the culture we live in, right? He wants us to look at our culture, look at all of these theories about race and gender and justice and use scripture to apply it um, and speak to it and bring the gospel to bear on, on the culture. Um, So we did have a call come in. Someone Up in the in the wee hours of the night that we would like to talk to, so we're we're going to jump over to Matt. Matt. Says he has some uh, thoughts for our show. Matt, how you doing? You're on the air with Apologetics.com. Doing well. How you doing? Good. All right. What's on your mind?
3: Um, So you had talked about earlier, kind of about the difference between uh, presuppositional apologetics and other forms of apologetics that sound like you think. Like presuppositional apologetics, uh, is like the Christian apologetic, um, versus other ones that would be neutral, I think, is how
1: you characterized it.
2: Um, I think that's, I think that's fair fair? generally. We could probably talk more about that, but yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We characterize it. Um,
3: so what do you think is the, like, qualitative difference between, uh, presuppositionalism versus, other
2: forms I think fundamentally that that idea for instance that there are like we talked about before there's no just facts that are standalone the idea of even reasoning that that someone does doesn't exist apart from God that even really any of the any kind of intellectual endeavor to get off the ground already depends on um, On God's existence and His self-revelation to us, we're so dependent on Him, and so if we're if we're kind of having an apologetics uh, approach, which is basically saying, "Hey, unbeliever, let's assume there is no God, and um, and just kind of put away the Bible and and all that, and then kind of just let's just start thinking about, you know, for instance, history or something like that. You're already kind of selling the farm." by doing that. There's, there's no reason to—that's kind of a sleazy assumption from an atheistic perspective to say that we can reason, for instance. Does that make sense?
3: Right, but I guess my question would be, why would you say that's unique to presuppositionalism? But so for example, uh, I would consider myself more of a classical uh, apologetics guy, where we understand that rationality— uh, for one, is dependent upon God, um, but also it is, we believe in common grace so that even unbelievers are able to cognize and think, and so uh, even though they do it uh, not from a neutral standpoint, we still recognize that they have the ability to think and reason, and so we appeal to reason because God, in His common grace, has given unbelievers the ability to do that
2: yeah and there you have to appeal to reason in, in the in the whole equation, and there has to be that that uh, point of contact that 's there the the nonbeliever is not living in a world without god they're not living in a world without rationality, um, and so you can't ever divorce yourself um from those things, but that's kind of part of the the point right is that you're not letting that go by unstated unnoticed right? You are appealing to that, but you're saying that even in appealing to that, even in the unbeliever's use of those rational uh, faculties, they they, are—God has to exist to make sense of that. So it's kind of like you're missing, like, one of the most obvious first steps if you just bypass that, um, that pointing that out. Does that make sense? Sure. So
3: I guess— I would the kind of the crux of the argument is we don't argue for a, a generic god we argue for the trinitarian Christian god. And so what arguments do you think presuppositionalism has that proves a trinitarian god over uh over what classical arguments kind of proving kind of god in general?
2: Um I think one one of the thing one of the most fundamental um Christian presuppositionalist arguments is, is the uh, transcendental argument, you know, which is essentially um, that without this uh, God of the Bible, without this Christian um, worldview, you're not able to prove anything. And so um, that that's a worldview that is, as you say, um, trying to prove Trinitarian uh, the Trinitarian God. Um, and it's offering it in, in a transcendental way rather than in a um, kind of a built from the bottoms up, you know, from some kind of rational faculty that is already suspect of the unbeliever um, could justify that anyway, or if that could be justified apart from God anyway?
3: So what would make, right, that—so what would make the Trinitarian Christian view necessary um, for un, having— the capability of knowing anything over, let's say, um, a Jewish, right? A, a Jewish view, which which denies Trinitarianism, um, but still maintains that God exists, that He's revealed Himself to human beings, etc. How are, are you uh, by the transcendental argument proving that? No, that can't be correct.
2: Then I would say you're arguing um, within. You, you, it's basically taking on a Christian heresy, essentially. You could, in, in a broad brush, you could say that this is a Christian her- heresy, so where do we go within our worldview? Y- you go to the scriptures, right? And so it's not taking a separate kind of uniquely uh, Christian transcendental argument to a... Uh, a heresy within that worldview. You're going now to the scriptures, and I think you could do a similar thing um, with is Islam as well. I would say, in that broad brush, it, it's a sense of a Christian heresy, and so you take the argument to the scriptures. Then you say you believe the scriptures, but what about this? What what is the um, what is the consistent um, Jewish reason for rejecting Christ? For rejecting God's revelation in the New Testament based on everything we know in the Old Testament, for instance, so I so right. I think it's so a little bit of not, a different approach when you're when you're within the worldview,
3: right? So then it actually the transcendental argument doesn't prove trinitarianism per se, right? You're going to have to make an argument for God in general per se. And then argue. No, no, no! You're not making
2: an argument for God in general. You're making an argument. It's always an argument for the total package of the Bible. That is the worldview. But then, when someone is within the worldview already, then it's it's a uh, it's a different approach because you're saying you're already in the worldview, but you're not being consistent with it.
1: Yeah,
3: I think right. And so, a Jew who doesn't accept the New Testament, uh, and they'll have different interpretations of the scripture than a Christian, you're they're just gonna say, okay, well it's a disagreement on exegesis or whatever right. it would be, and you're not actually proving Trinitarianism, right? You're the argument doesn't prove Trinitarianism to the I degree would, that I think yeah. presuppositionalists think it does.
1: I would say the transcendental argument is, you know, one aspect of presuppositionalism. Um, or covenantal apologetics. Um, you know, but one of the things that covenantal apologetics does is it has the ability to step into the the unbeliever's worldview. In this case, it would be a Jewish person in your example, right? And mm-hmm. I think when it comes to the Trinity specifically, you know, the presupposition, the starting point is the triune God of Scripture, right, who has spoken, Right. And the way you do that is you step into their worldview and you show that only the triune God can make sense of reality right so that's how you get to the the triune God is you show that you know if you if you're believing in just a unitarian god you you don't get the reality you can't make sense of reality, but the triune God can. You know, one, you know, one simple aspect when maybe speaking to a Muslim or a Jewish person. Um, And these these conversations, I think, are more philosophical in nature. And I guess they get a little bit more muddied Um, and I avoid them unless they actually come up. I don't go out of my way to, like, bring these things up. But I think the one and the many is like one of those philosophical conundrums um, that kind of bridges, you know, the philosophical school of like Parmenides, which is like everything is one and only one. Like everything's just this big abstract blob of oneness. There is, you know, um, there is only tree ness. There's no trees, right? There's only like duck ness. There's no, there's no ducks. Whereas um, I think it was Heraclitus or something. Um, where he said everything is constantly changing. Like you can't step into the same river twice because once you step into it, mm-hmm. you've changed the river, right? And so he would say everything's always changing, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's just there is not one, there's many. It's just constant flux and constant change. And to harmonize these two, you look at a tree outside your window, right and which is a unique specific thing, but it's also part of the group of trees which make up this idea of, of treeness right and so the triune god helps us to reconcile and harmonize these realities that we live with right and so um i think that's that's a way you get at you know the necessity of the triune god of scripture and the way you do that the the transcendental argument doesn't necessarily get you there but the 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 presupposition that god is triune because he's revealed himself in scripture and that is our starting point you then jump into their worldview and say, hey, unless, you, unless you're believing this, your worldview doesn't make sense. And so you show it by the impossibility of the trend. And I think Which you're is- seeing two – those are two sides, I think, of the presuppositional
2: coin, Matt, that, that are kind of coming out there. One is some of that stuff that's – You, you know, need to go on
1: another hike and we'll talk about it some more, Matt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I can never hide from you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> try, you have to try them. a fake
2: name next time. Really good to hear from <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, but when um, I, I think what Jason's talking about with particularly this the, the question about the uniquely Trinitarian aspect of the argument, he's talking about, I think, things that uh, you have to have – that, you know, the Trinitarian God to make sense of so many parts of reality. And I think that's a legitimate argument. But I do think, just to clarify again, Matt, my perspective, when I say you're talking to a Jew, a, a Jewish person um, and you're saying um, you're defending the Christian worldview, what I mean by that is the whole body of Scripture, essentially. The Christian worldview is defined by Scripture. And so when you're calling a, a Jewish person to account for all of that truth of Scripture... Um, Trinity is part of that. That doesn't mean they're going to believe it necessarily, but I think that's the the, the rationality of the argument anyway. Jason, are Oh, you? man,
1: we are, we're coming up on the, the end of the show here with the music. Matt, thank you so much for calling. Um, good to hear from you. I hope you're doing well, man. I have to come um, back to talk about you.
2: this book and So, yeah,
1: we didn't get to unpack Thinking Through Creation as much as we had liked, so we'll have to do another show on that because there's yeah. so much great content in there. But we wanted to thank you for tuning in tonight to the Apologetics.com radio show. Uh, Thanks, Emma, for being in the studio and doing the sound for us. Thanks, Grant, for being here. My pleasure. Had fun. And uh, from Jason Gallagher and Apologetics.com, keep the faith. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.